Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Barnaby Rain, welcome to Victor's Children. Could you briefly introduce yourself for the listeners? Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. I am um, a socialist. Uh, I've been on the left for too long, given how young I am, because uh, I joined as a teenager. Um, and um, like many people, I think, uh, on the radical left, got my education uh, through the same unorthodox wing of Trotskyism in, in Britain that I know you, David, uh, were educated in in Canada, the, the International Socialist, the IS tradition. Um, and I've now t- taken all kinds of useful things from that tradition and also um, disagree with all kinds of shibboleths from it. Um, and I'm doing a PhD, writing my PhD uh, in history at Columbia University in New York. And I, uh, I write about visions of the end of capitalism and what happened to them in the 20th century. So our topic today, which is thinking about distorted and deflected forms of thinking about anti-capitalist politics is something I'm quite interested in. Great, thanks. So I think we should start by def- defining some of the terms that we're going to be focusing on since they're not familiar to everybody. Uh, and the first one is is campism. And then um, the other one, I guess, would be this term of tanky. So could you just give us some working definitions? Absolutely. So I think... Uh, yeah, you ask about campism and tankies, it might be helpful to think about campism old and new. So um, all campism, I think, makes a claim, a certain kind of claim about deflection. So it reads class struggles, the old bread and butter of Marxist politics, as overwhelmingly deflected into struggles between states. So if you want to understand a world of class struggle in the 20th century, campism said, um, uh, the, the real class struggles are actually deflected away from being worker boss in New York or London and into the struggle between the United States and the Soviet Union. So it's a deflection of, uh, of class struggle. And it's a kind of, therefore, a geopolitical orientation for left politics. Geopolitics is the real terrain of struggle. It's born in communist parties then. You can kind of already begin to imagine how this develops, where the interests of socialism are identified with the interests of the Soviet Union, which means that um, because this is the kind of workers' paradise that uh, enthralls you if you're a socialist in 1917, 18, 1920, who watches the first workers' state be born. Um, and, uh, and so the interests of the Soviet Union come to be synonymous with the interests of socialism and the defense of the Soviet Union comes to be synonymous with the defense of socialism. So the kind of ground zero, I think, for the the... the, the openly troubling implications of this uh, geopolitical orientation to socialism is not actually 1956, which I'll talk about in the moment when the term tanky is first thrown around, but earlier, it's the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, I think. So it's when the Soviet Union signs a pact with Hitler and the Nazi state, uh, the opposition to which has been the premise, the groundwork of socialist politics in the 1930s until that point, suddenly the Nazi state is allied with, uh, with the state to which you as a Communist Party member are loyal. Suddenly the state which has imprisoned uh, the Communist Party leadership in concentration camps, um, the, the 
a big brigade in the Spanish Civil War was named the Ernst Talman Brigade after the leader of the German Communist Party imprisoned by the Nazis in Dachau. Suddenly that state has its foreign minister shaking hands and smiling with, uh, with the foreign minister of the Soviet Union. And at that moment, some communists break away and, and, and are horrified. Um, and others say that the loyal line say that World War II, when it begins to break out then, is an imperialist war uh, and Britain and is no better than, than, than Nazi Germany. Um, um, because the interests of the Soviet Union are the interests of world socialism. And so you begin to see there in the ability even to endorse a pact with fascism, um, uh, the, the beginnings of a campist logic of socialism really uh, becoming apparent in its differences from a more traditional, um, or, or you might think a simpler socialist orientation. And you can also begin to see how that kind of logic could be defended. Well, if the Soviet Union is uh, absolutely fundamental to the survival of world socialism, then the defense of the Soviet Union against British imperialism, which has no interest in allying with it at this point, and giving it time to rearm and fight against the Nazis is fundamental um, to the defense of socialism. So that kind of logic, we need to defend the Soviet Union, even if it's a bit ugly, uh, it, that, that is not the Soviet Union itself is seen as ugly, but, but the, the need to defend it in a certain moment might be a bit uh, uh, difficult. We need to defend it in order to defend world socialism. Then explains how you get to a position where in 1956 in Hungary, you have what I think Hannah Arendt called the only freely operating Soviets in the world. That is to say, workers in a revolution in Hungary um, taking the kind of power that uh, uh, Lenin uh, once uh, smiled so fondly on. Um, and then you have Soviet tanks rolling in to crush that experiment. And then uh, in Prague in 1968, uh, a Czechoslovak socialism with a human face uh, as Dubček called it, is, is again crushed by Soviet tanks, even more shocking in a sense, because uh, the, the Czechs uh, didn't even want to leave the Warsaw Pact, the, the Soviet uh, alliance, so couldn't even so easily be framed as agents of imperialism. Um, but you can see how an argument which gets called tanky by its detractors because it sides with the tanks that march in uh, to Budapest and Prague begins to be formed in the firmament of that late 1930s anti-fascist moment where the really shocking break, it seems to me, is the ability of people whose politics has been forged around anti-fascism to side with an alliance with the Nazis on the basis of a broader anti-imperialism, which says, well, you know, Britain's just as much an enemy. British imperialism is a global enemy. Uh, the real need is to defend the Soviet Union. That's an old fashioned 20th century campism. Today, of course, the Soviet Union's gone. And uh, sometimes the use of the term tanky now uh, labels a kind of nostalgic sentimental politics which uh, looks upon the Soviet Union as a, as a gorgeous, wonderful thing and often has a kind of kitsch aesthetic of uh, you know, wanting to decorate our rooms with old Soviet art. Um, but sometimes it labels support for today's tanks which claim to be uh, the vanguard against global capitalism. And they might be um, the tanks of the Assad regime, um, or the re-education camps of the Chinese state in Xinjiang against the Uyghur people. Um, these other massive bureaucratic behemoths, autocratic dictatorships, which uh, are, to which is ascribed some kind of anti-imperialist um, virtue. I think that this kind of campism, so that is to say it's still a campism in the sense that it still thinks that class struggle is deflected onto struggles between different camps of states, um, is distinct from the old Communist Party uh, love of the Soviet Union because I think it's much more pessimistic. So I think it's not the form of a kind of starry-eyed faith in a distant paradise. Um, the, the, the people joining the Communist Party in the 30s who really believed that the Soviet Union was the only power that had weathered the Great Depression, um, that was building a kind of extraordinary new society. The five-year plans were being completed in four years. It was really marvellous. Bukharin really was a traitor. Um, no, I think this is a politics which is much more uh, miserable, uh, 
which says not always. There are a few people who will say Bashar al-Assad is marvelous and he's creating in Syria a gorgeous uh, society or um, Gaddafi did the same in Libya until the West got rid of him. And, you know, the Chinese states lifted more people out of poverty. This is to repeat lines from capitalist apologists, you know, Um, but but they've lifted people out of poverty in this view because it's a socialist paradise. There are a few people who believe that. But lots of people, I think, on the Western left who are inclined to sympathy with these kinds of states are inclined to sympathy, not because they think these states are building a majestic new uh, paradise, but because they think there's nothing else because they think that in a world in which American imperialism uh, seemed in the language of the new world order of the 1990s to run hegemonic rampant across the earth with no antagonists, uh, they search these leftists for some small crumbs of opportunity um, in the possibility of resisting the global tide of, uh, of American dominance. And so I think of this as a kind of left Fukuyamaism. You know, Francis Fukuyama famously talked about the end of history and Slavoj Žižek has this mocking term about a left Fukuyamaism to describe the third way, these uh, people like Blair and Clinton um, who accepted that end of history uh, and their, so their socialism wasn't really about trying to end or transform capitalism at all. Well, I don't think people like Blair and Clinton, uh, certainly after the first few years, deserve any kind of left label. The people who certainly are on the left, who understand themselves as being on the left, who are actively part of all kinds of left campaigns and who've really accepted an end of history are, I think, those people who don't think we can do any better than the defense of states like China, Syria, Cuba, sometimes even North Korea, um, uh, as uh, uh, building blocks in a feeble global antagonist against the overwhelming dominance of American power. So this is a pessimistic campism, not an optimistic campism, which thinks uh, there are there is a socialist camp which is uh, gorgeous and glorious, but a pessimistic campism which thinks there is an anti-imperialist camp which at least will stop the advance of American hegemony all over the world. Um, and uh, both campisms, but I think quite distinct. And that's not to say there's a simple rupture. There were all kinds of pessimists in members of the Communist Party who didn't think the Soviet Union was a glorious place but thought it was necessary to defend it. But I think broadly there's been this kind of shift from a form of optimism to a form of pessimism in, in campus politics. I think that's very helpful. I'll just maybe um, say that while there are some people who would be happy with the term tanky and they use it to describe themselves, um, I think that's not really the case with campism, right? I'm not sure I've ever encountered anyone who was prepared to self-describe that way. Could you say something about how people tend to self-identify? Um, oh, I don't know. I mean, um, um, the, the term campism is uh, certainly often used uh, critically by those who come from the left tradition of the third camp, which uh, in one slogan of the tradition I mentioned at the outset, the international socialist tradition, the slogan was neither Washington nor Moscow. Um, and a third camp was um, those struggling for freedom and socialism, uh, whether they were trade unionists in America uh, striking against the boss there, or whether they were trade unionists in solidarity in Poland striking against the Stalinist state. That was a kind of attempt. And it was very much an aspirational politics, an attempt to forge a third camp uh, which claimed a unity of the oppressed and exploited all over the world, which often was hard in practice to forge. Um, I think then that I, I know some people, I mean, much of my experience, this comes from friends on the left who have this kind of politics and who I argue with that. I, I think there are people who wouldn't object to the term campus being applied to them. They really think there are two camps in world politics. Um, but along the lines of this kind of pessimistic reading that I'm, I'm ascribing to them, I think they would claim to be the more pragmatic, more realistic 
of socialists. This is the kind of label that Zizek's left Fukuyamaists, the Third Way, the Blairites, the Clintonites adopted for themselves. We're the pragmatic realists who accept the truth of global market dominates and don't really believe anymore in this starry-eyed stuff about socialist transformation. Well, here are the people who really claim still to be part of the left, who really do want to uh, enact a wave of mass nationalizations in, in Western countries, um, really do want to jack up taxes against the wealthy. But they get to claim that they're the pragmatic realists because they are aligned not to some distant hope of a revolution that's never succeeded. Can you name a country where socialism's ever succeeded, say the right with sneers? Well, they can name lots of nations uh, that they regard as at least worthy of support, if not ideal. So I think they would tend to use a language of, of, um, of uh, having claimed from the right and from liberals uh, uh, the sober-eyed realism uh, that the right and liberals think doesn't belong to a naive, stargazing left. They would use language about themselves like pragmatic and realistic and sensible left. Right. Um, you've obviously said a number of things that are um, I think quite perceptively critical of this kind of politics. Did you want to say any more about your political critique of these uh, positions? Yeah, I, I think the, the critique for me requires a critique of social democracy, too, um, because it is um, a question of recovering a 19th century tradition that perhaps reached its apex with the Paris Commune, which... Lenin and the Bolsheviks were so excited by um, one of the difficulties of understanding a text like Lenin's State and Revolution is the degree to which the Bolsheviks were part, not of the 20th century world that people thought they were creating, but of this 19th century world in which the left was a project of freedom and popular power and capital was understood as a form of domination. Um, indeed, capital and the state were understood as intertwined forms of domination. Now, that's very different from a 20th century world, and this is a world in which the states, most states are um, uh, quite small bureaucratic apparatuses where Lenin says any cook can govern. He's thinking about a bureaucratic apparatus that's quite simple and small, and they're run by tiny numbers of people. When Marx says the state is the executive committee for managing the affairs of the bourgeoisie, might seem strange to us today, but this is not a world in 1848 of universal suffrage. It's not a world of states which provide massive healthcare programs and education programs. It's a world of states which are small forces that arrive to break up strikes. Um, uh, of course, the 20th century, the early 20th century world becomes quite different. It's a world of universal suffrage in many parts uh, of at least Europe, um, which is the firmament for this redefinition of the left. Um, and so the state increasingly becomes, and importantly, the national state, increasingly becomes the instrument to use in the management and the supersession of capitalism, which is identified now with something called the economy. And that whole language of the economy isn't a language that exists in the 19th century. It's not a term that Marx ever uses, for example, with the definite article. Um, so the economy becomes the staging ground for the split between left and right. The question of state intervention in the economy becomes the key test for the left, in which case, whether you're a social democrat or a Stalinist supporter of the Soviet Union, um, uh, you've got a coherent language for thinking about um, socialism as a kind of statism and a management of economic difference and an attempt to, to guide yourself towards economic equality, all of which is quite far from the idea of capital as a form of domination by the boss over the worker and indeed by the impersonal force of uh, uh, market accumulation as an impersonal imperative that governs both capitalists and workers and dominates all of us and socialism as an attempt at a kind of empowerment beyond that hierarchy of power and indeed status. Uh, um, uh, that I hope people can see as a different kind of politics and a socialist politics premised on freedom and power and the abolition of status hierarchies as I see it, 
um, uh, the development for Marx of a genuine individuality of the kind which is held back by our conscription into different parts of the division of labor. Um, this is very different from a socialism of state management, uh, which doesn't have perhaps such lofty aspirations at the flourishing of our free individuality, or if it keeps them, reserves them for a very distant future. But in the immediate uh, future, wants to uh, give us bread and give us schools and hospitals, which especially in the years of the Great Depression, uh, for example, uh, in the miserable 1930s, uh, seems like a pretty urgent promise uh, and a promise which socialists claim to deliver and, and capitalists can't. Um, so I think that uh, my criticism and my skepticism about this kind of politics is how firmly it follows that redefinition uh, of socialism into the space of the economy and so gives up the promise of popular power, which of course is not a promise that you could ever claim is realized or that you could realistically claim is realized by either the big bureaucracies of social democratic welfare state societies or the dictatorial bureaucracies of Stalinist societies. Now I think contemporary campism makes another move and redefines the left-right split, not even in the space of the economy because the Chinese state isn't really uh, uh, delivering economic equality and certainly neither is the neoliberal state in Syria, for example. Um, instead now it's geopolitics as the staging ground for the left-right split. Where do you stand on the question of uh, of American interests in the world and America's ability to wage war to get cheap oil? Where do you stand um, on the ability of the Zionist state to harass and abuse the Palestinian people? These become the staging grounds um, for, for politics um, uh, rather than um, uh, questions of freedom and power, which should, of course, incorporate firm opposition to imperialism of the American or Israeli kind in the name of universal freedom. Um, so um, that means that we need two different kinds of critique, I think. One for the optimistic campism and one for the pessimistic camp. So to the optimistic campists who think that, say, the Soviet Union is a marvelous place, we point out that Soviet society maintained the alienation and the domination by abstract labor core to capitalist modernity, that it was a Fordist mode of production premised on industrial accumulation, not a society in which the free development of each was the condition for the free development of all, and in which the workers of that society genuinely controlled um, uh, its decision-making processes and were able to move beyond their domination above all by labor, which is the central kind of brutal domination uh, that, that capital uh, ensures. Um, that's a critique of the continuing capitalist life um, of, uh, of the Soviet Union. Istvan Metzeros draws a distinction between capitalism and capital. Um, capital as a form of domination, uh, he thinks, and I think this is quite right, uh, retains some of its central features in Soviet society. It's still a domination by the imperative of abstract labor, uh, wage society. Um, now, of course, that's useless as a, as a form of critique against those pessimistic campists who don't think that their societies they defend are such marvelous places and don't need to be told that they're still capitalist places. And I think that it's actually harder to approach the critique of these pessimistic campists because they're right about a core grain, which is it is indeed true that we don't live in a world in which there is some emancipatory possibility immediately before us. Um, and if we did, it would be very easy to dismiss their criticism, their, their defenses of, uh, of, of uh, states around the world by saying, look, here's this alternative we have of global revolution. Uh, we should acknowledge the grain of truth that they're seizing on, um, uh, which I think explains, and we'll talk more about this, some of their resurgence today, um, that, that their pessimism is grounded um, in, in a reality, uh, which is the difficulty of conceiving bigger historical transformations. But of course, 
it's a circular kind of paranoia, which says there is no politics possible but the defense of my state. And so therefore any politics that does develop, like when revolution breaks out in Syria, can only be read through the categories of either the defense of my state or the imperialist opposition to my state. So when uh, young people in Syria scrawl on a wall graffiti saying people demand the downfall of the regime and are tortured in prisons, they're just imperialist agents. When workers in Cuba are concerned about a year of economic uh, brutality caused both by the imperialist American blockade and by the collapse of tourism revenues because of COVID um, and by mismanagement by a bureaucratic elite that lives a more luxurious life than ordinary Cubans, they can only be imperialist agents. It's a circular argument which insists on the truth of the condition that it begins by quite reasonably diagnosing, which is a kind of lack of emancipatory alternatives. And so therefore crushes any ability to see emancipatory alternatives when even in a tiny embryonic form they develop because it reads all politics just as, um, uh, as, as a conflict between imperialism and anti-imperialist states. And therefore utterly gives up again, just like the original Soviet apologist Campism did, utterly gives up on the possibility of trying to hone again a socialism of popular power and freedom um, to which I think we should be loyal. So. Uh, uh, that kind of politics is, of course, as firm in opposing imperialist domination as campism is. We oppose imperialist domination because it's a form of power and uh, subjugation uh, which violates the promise of freedom uh, to which socialists are loyal. So we oppose, for example, the, the American blockade on Cuba that I mentioned. But we don't oppose it in the name of defending the states uh, uh, that these imperialists oppose, uh, but in the name of, of supporting a politics of human freedom against, uh, above all, imperialist power, but also against those perverted uh, and, and deflected uh, uh, forms of uh, supposedly socialist politics, which are uh, bureaucratic states. Thanks. I think you've, you know, done that critique really brilliantly. I think it's um, very clear for listeners. So um, I want to move now to talk a little bit about the growth of campus politics or the strengthening of campus politics on the left, because I think in these politics were very strong in a certain form until the fall of the Stalinist states in Eastern Europe and the collapse of the USSR at the end of the 1980s, early 1990s. Um, those events really dealt a serious blow to, to Stalinism and campism, I think, generally declined. But we've, I think, seen a, a growth of their influence on the left, uh, at least in relative terms. I've heard it argued by some people in the U.S. that these politics are not relatively stronger. They're only stronger in absolute terms because the entire left has grown. But um, I don't, I'm not persuaded by that. Um, certainly in, in the Canadian state, I think this kind of politics has become relatively stronger on the left. Um, so what's your assessment in terms of the, the relative strength of these politics on the left? I think you're absolutely right that it's not simply an absolute uh, question. Um, I think that uh, ask yourself the question of what the left common sense is. When I was uh, politicized in the uh, uh, late sort of 2000s, um, the end of the first decade of the 2000s, um, one of the central things that socialists still had to do in order to get any kind of hearing with anyone was to reassure people that our politics wasn't the politics of the Soviet Union. That was still the episode, uh, not just the collapse of the Soviet Union, not just 1989, but the life of the Soviet Union, the miserable life of the Soviet Union, indisputable to people by the 1970s and 80s. You know, in the 1930s, lots of people who were not uh, apologists of the Soviet Union nonetheless thought it was uh, a society that had, as I said, successfully weathered the Great Depression, unlike capitalist societies, and was, was, uh, was marching forward um, uh, in terms of productivity. Um, and even people believe perhaps the sort of laughable 1936 Soviet constitution, which claimed to offer all kinds of democratic freedoms to people. Um, in the 1950s and even early 1960s, there was concern in America that the Soviet Union would overtake 
um, America. Um, but by the 1970s and 80s, uh, it was very clear that the Soviet Union was a kind of um, weight around the neck of lots of Western socialists. Of course, for lots of anti-colonial struggles, it was still a crucial ally. And much of the problem of the transition out of apartheid in South Africa was caused by the defeat of the Soviet Union and therefore the lack of available uh, allies for the ANC. And that was one of the reasons that they were they were pushed into um, a position of all kinds of concessions. The same might be true, you could argue, for, for Palestinians in a similar period of concessions around Oslo. So I don't want to do down the importance of Soviet alliances still for people all over the world. Um, but certainly for Western European, the kinds of context in which you and I are from, communist parties had recognized by the 1970s that, that alliance with the Soviet Union was more a millstone around their neck than it was a point of pride, as it might have seemed in the 1930s or in, say, 1945, when there was a wave of sympathy for Stalin after, understandably, after uh, the heroic uh, sacrifice of the Soviet people against fascism. Um, so showing that you're an anti-Soviet leftist was key to getting a hearing. And so in Britain... The Socialist Workers' Party, the, that current of Trotskyism, which wasn't just Trotskyist, Trotsky, of course, murdered by Stalin and the uh, most erudite left critic of Stalinism, um, but was an unorthodox Trotskyist organization because its criticism of Stalinism was much more trenchant and much uh, uh, more extreme, you might say, uh, than uh, Trotsky himself, an orthodox Trotskyist that denied that there was any workers' power or socialist content in uh, Eastern European and Soviet societies, it called them capitalist societies, and therefore read the defeat, read the fall of the Berlin Wall with some joy, some delight, much to the horror of the rest of the left. Later said it wasn't a step forward or a step backward, but a step sideways, I think. But this was a current uh, that grew in the 1990s in Britain, uh, where other left currents didn't, I think in part because it wasn't corrupted by affiliation and association with the Soviet Union. I think we're clearly in a different place now. Um, uh, that is to say, where the publication of that current socialist worker published uh, uh, critical things about the Cuban states the other week amid protests in Cuba. Um, uh, much of the left the, uh, on Twitter, on social media, um, and people I spoke to anecdotally, you know, there was kind of horror and shock and confusion that you had a left group uh, criticizing the Cuban state. Now, there's always been a lot of um, sympathy and support for the Cuban state amid the kind of uh, a heroic David and Goliath story of, of, of Cuba's persistence against the American blockade. Um, but um, uh, I think that there has been a shift um, away from a need to differentiate yourself as a leftist from support for campist kinds of politics and towards instead much more sympathy with campist kinds of politics for reasons that I'm interested in exploring. Um, you'll note that I just talked about Twitter and my anecdotal conversations. This kind of thing is hard to measure. Um, both of our senses are anecdotal. Um, I, I do strongly think this is the case, um, but it is anecdotal. And I, I, I don't, you know, I, I had an article about this recently and that I sent to various people who said, can you evidence this claim that this kind of politics is rising? And I said, well, I can give you a list of you know, podcasts that uh, reflect this kind of politics and that I think are, get, are clearly getting lots of listens at the moment. And I can give you a list of influential people on social media. Um, uh, it's hard to have much more of a sense than that. Uh, but, you know, if you go and hang out on the left and talk to people, I think the kinds of politics you hear are different now than they were 10 years ago. Yeah, certainly that's my sense of things in Canada. Absolutely. So let's dig a little deeper, though. Uh, and that's the question of, of why um, this kind of politics has become stronger. And you've alluded to this before, but can you say some more about the growth of this politics and the, its attraction to people in, in the moment that we're living? With pleasure. Um, so I think the first thing to understand is I think of this as something affective. Um, um, 
So uh, that is to say, it's about emotion, it's about style, um, it's not just all about the content of its claims. So this is something which is often missed by critics on the left who want to have old fashioned kinds of arguments about how bad Stalin really was. Um, I think there is a parallel to something like Trumpism here. You know, there was a uh, one of the things that liberals like to be terrified about in the years of Trump in America was the emergence, the possibility of the emergence of a serious Trump. People focused on the Congressman Josh Hawley and people like that. Oh dear, what if there was a Trump who emerged who wasn't such a joke figure, who was really serious about his fascism? And I always found this strange because I thought that part of Trump's appeal was that he was a joke figure. That is to say, he broke taboos. And I think that breaking taboos, amid an experience of the failure of the social order which constructed those taboos, is the appeal of the alt-right and of the contemporary new tankies, new campus, which is to say the two demons, the two unspeakable, unmentionable demons of um, liberal democratic society are Nazism and Stalinism. And so to embrace either of those, whether you stand at the front of a meeting hall and shout, hail Trump, as Richard Spencer did, um, or say, um, I love Marshal Zhukov and the parades in Red Square, as lots of meme pages do on Facebook, to embrace either of these is to shock deliberately because you feel that the order which tells you these things are unacceptable is an order which has left you uh, uh, with rising rents, uh, uh, um, uh, fewer job prospects, uh, and a future which is vanishingly difficult to grasp unlike uh, the world of your parents, uh, the world of the baby boomers um, who, um, who, 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 could, who could believe in a kind of future. Um, so it's a turn back to idealize a, the most provocative possible past in the face of the increasing inaccessibility of faith in the future, uh, which liberal democracy claims to be giving you. Um, so I think that's a key condition for understanding it. And if you don't understand its affect as central to it, I think you won't understand uh, some of the rise of this kind of politics on the left. Uh, where it takes a more deliberately provocative form. And then more basically, I think it's an escape from a kind of twin condition on the left, which is firstly, hegemony's certainty that nothing else is possible. That Fukuyama's claim that people are trying to run away from while still believing it, uh, I don't blame them, it's very difficult not to, uh, uh, that, uh, that, that we've reached the end of history. Um, so it's an attempt to find other things, other forms of society, supposedly other, um, supposedly different, uh, which were possible after all. And no one can dispute, you know, someone might dispute the possibility uh, for some uh, radical 1990s leftist who idealizes the Zapatistas. Someone might come along and say, well, are they, is that kind of politics really likely to run huge societies of millions of people? No one can dispute that the Soviet Union once ran a huge society of millions of people that China does today. Um, so it's both an attempt to escape a kind of pessimistic hegemony, uh, which says absolutely nothing but liberal democratic capitalism is possible, and it's also at the same time, I think, crucially, an attempt to escape the vampire castle, what Mark Fisher famously called the vampire castle, as a form of radical politics amid that hegemonic condition, which would retreat into uh, uh, safe spaces uh, in an unsafe world and would come with a kind of suffocating moralism and a masochism, um, which sees radical politics as a matter of tiny groups of people um, uh, uh, checking their, uh, the privilege of their friends and neighbours. Um, this is to voice the scathing way of talking about that politics, which I think um, contemporary campism would adopt, which is to say, actually, we want to feel powerful again. We don't want to feel like we're the people in a room uh, uh, endlessly checking our own privilege, endlessly trying to purify our own souls. We want to feel instead like we're the people at the front of a huge parade of tanks. We want to feel that we can have a left which is powerful. You'll see how this is still again affected. Um, I think it's a desire for power, a desire to feel important, um, a desire to feel that something might be possible uh, beyond uh, the, the stultifying tiny worlds uh, of, uh, of kind of pessimistic identity politics. Um, it is a desire for a left which seems, again, to frighten and to scare uh, uh, the real powers of the world. 
whatever you think of him, Stalin certainly did that. And the vampire castle doesn't do that very much. Now, what you said about the emotional appeal of these politics brings up, up um, in my mind, the question of what those of us who stand for a very different emancipatory politics, um, you know, would take from that. Uh, so I'm going to maybe come back to that at the end about um, if we're trying to argue for something very different, given this affective dimension of politics, I think it's something that needs to be mm. thought about some more. But um, can we maybe situate then this the appeal of, of, of campism more broadly in terms of the moment of history that we're living in and what this tells us about our times? If we consider think, the present absolutely. as a moment of history. Totally. I think we absolutely can. I mean, one of the first things it should tell us, one of the most important things, is that this form of politics resurges in a moment where politics is heavily about the past, not the future. Um, given that campism is not just about uh, support for present dictatorial and bureaucratic and autocratic states, but is about the attempt to rescue uh, and claim for ourselves the legacy and the image of those past states, like the Soviet Union above all. Um, it, this tells us that we're in a moment unlike the 1980s and the 1990s, in which liberals and the right uh, had a politics of the future and the left wanted to as well. Um, we're in a moment instead in which politics is overwhelmingly about nostalgia amid a moment in the West of a kind of feeling of decline. So we've gone from mourning in America under Ronald Reagan to make America great again under Donald Trump. We've gone from things can only get better under Tony Blair to take back control, take back control under the Brexiteers. A sense that politics is about the recovery of something glorious which has been lost. And that sense is felt on the right. There was once an imperial world or there was once a proud American world or whatever it is that we've lost and we've become peripheralized and marginalized. And though we, we used to rule the world and now we're taking orders from someone else. Um, it's felt on the left, too, on the sort of social democratic left, a huge uh, outpouring of uh, excitement in Britain about the Ken Loach film, The Spirit of 45, uh, which constructs an image of a post-war world now lost to us, which was glorious, um, supposedly. Um, and so I think that uh, contemporary campism with its nostalgia for Soviet societies is, is one form uh, of left politics that emerges in a moment where politics is overwhelmingly geared towards the past in the absence of a kind of hope about the future. Um, I also think it's important to name alongside, I mentioned Mark Fisher a moment ago, alongside Mark Fisher's famous diagnosis of capitalist realism, that inability to think a world beyond capitalism. Um, I think it's important to name a problem of imperialist realism, um, that inability to think a world beyond imperialism, so that all you can do if you're opposed to American imperialism is take a different side in the inter-imperialist conflicts. So you look at Syria, for example, and see not a revolution which offers some hope of a, of a future democratic society, but see all that you can ever see if you're an imperialist realist, which is a conflict of imperialism, which of course is absolutely there in Syria. And so you see a conflict between, on the one hand, Israel, America, actually, to be honest, Turkey and the Gulf states. Um, and on the other hand, uh, Russia, Iran, above all, um, uh, Hezbollah as, as, as Iran's agent and, um, uh, and China. And, uh, and so you can only take a side in that conflict. And then it's clear as a leftist on that kind of logic that you can't possibly take this. Of course, you can't take the side. Uh, of the major imperialist powers of the world that do the most violent damage in the world. Um, so it's a problem of imperialist realism alongside a problem of capitalist realism, which speaks, and this is why it interests me in my academic work, to a condition of the end of history. I also think that it's really a kind of nostalgia for social democracy as well as a nostalgia um, uh, as it initially appears for, say, the Soviet Union, which is to say um, it's a nostalgia for a world in which the languages of class and socialism and uh, state power 
instituting vast social transformations, so-called, meant something. It's a nostalgia for a post-war world in which state power uh, speaking a language of socialism was, was a reality. And that, I think, is not just a nostalgia from these campists for Stalin. I think it's also a nostalgia for welfare state societies. Uh, and, and in summoning the memory of, of, of the Soviet heyday of the 1950s and 60s, of the five-year plans, they're also summoning the memory of a welfareist world, a Fordist Keynesian world as well. I think it's sort of a nostalgia for that. Um, and it's trying to claim the mantle of a hard-headed realism from liberals. It's refusing to be the stargazing kids, as I was saying earlier. It's kind of outdoing the right for cynicism. Um, and so gleefully claiming the terrain that the right thought was theirs. Um, uh, you know, you think you're the real cynics. I'm the one who will defend millions of deaths. <laughs> I'm the real cynic. Uh, I understand millions of deaths are necessary for my kind of politics, while still finding an outlet for those undead desires, scorned as infantile, to break all the rules and to believe that everything could be different. Um, and so I think contemporary campism iterates this tension between an extreme kind of pessimism and a desperation to feel a certain kind of optimism, to just allow yourself to believe in something um, and to give doubt a rest for a moment, to give cynicism a rest for a moment and believe that there might be a better world out there somewhere. And it's in this, it's in inhabiting this space of tension between a pessimism that I think is pretty well grounded and a desperation for faith with which I have a great deal of sympathy that I think of campism not just as something with which I disagree and against which I want to wag my finger, but also have quite a lot of sympathy for the kinds of impulses that lead people there. So then this brings us to the question of, you know, for, for all those of us who actually remain committed to a truly emancipatory politics and who recognize that we are not living in 1917, we're not living in 1968, or 1980, or, you know, we are, we are living in, in 2021, in this particular historical moment that you've very evocatively uh, just described in a number of different dimensions. You know, what, in this moment, what might the kind of politics that are needed actually look like? A very, very different kind of politics, I mean, depending on what language you might want to use, depending on our traditions, sometimes people still find it valuable to use the term socialism from below. I still find it, you know, that term is, I think, quite useful, um, provided one understands it in a kind of a broad way rather than as a reference to a particularly narrow, defined uh, tradition. But whatever we call it, this kind of emancipatory socialism um, grounded in to human freedom and truly democratic popular power um, as the road to the transition you know, towards that society of freedom. What might those politics today look like? Well, it means seizing on emancipatory openings where they exist. So one thing that I often think about in my uh, academic research on histories of thinking about the end of capitalism is how struck I am by the continued life of a politics of anti-capitalism as empowerment, as the abolition of hierarchies of status that code us into different social positions and the, the attempt instead to live out an individuality freed of uh, the humiliations of power and status and uh, the uh, subjugation by the division of labor, subjugation by the compulsions of abstract labor at all. I'm struck by the survival of that kind of politics in all kinds of places where people strive for a life of freedom beyond just uh, the most obvious traditional um, left avenues. And it's some of those places that I always want to pick up. So if you see Marx as being about this, as being about the recovery of an individuality not defined against the collective as in liberal individuality, um, Marx says, you know, the liberal view of freedom makes everyone see and everyone else the limit rather than the realization of their freedom. But a view of individuality in which I am empowered 
Uh, I have a kind of autonomous power over myself, over my own direction, in concert with others, uh, uh, living out my species being, my, uh, my, my participation in, in, in humanity, um, uh, by the direction together, the empowered direction together of, of the future of, of the species. Um, you see that kind of politics, not perhaps carry, and you see it very much in Lenin's uh, view of the Soviets, the core of Bolshevik. Uh, Lenin once wrote that the, the central tenet of Bolshevism is getting involved in politics, those most oppressed and previously least involved. Not a demand for economic equality. That's not Lenin's core of Bolshevism, but a politics of empowerment. Of course, you can trace the early career of the Soviet Union, even under Lenin, as the tragic uh, lack of the manifestation of that initial dream. Um, but if you see that dream of popular power as central to how Marx understands his politics, how Lenin in the revolutionary moment at least understands his politics, you see it not much continued by bureaucratic Stalinist communist parties, not much continued by social democrats, some of whom uh, continue even to speak about Marx, the Labour Party in Britain in 1945, reproduced the Communist Manifesto. But you certainly see it continued in a lot of feminist politics. You certainly see it continued in a lot of anti-colonial liberation struggles, which are all about power. Um, uh, and, and the reassertion of popular power and what Franz Fanon called like the early Marx disalienation, right? That is to say, getting rid of the alienation of power to others and to impersonal market forces. You certainly see it in a lot of black power politics in that 1968, long 1968 moment. You certainly see it in a lot of gay liberation politics and broader queer and sexual liberation politics. So you can find that red thread if you get rid of the economism which came to invade the left, not in the sense of not thinking that struggles we now call economic struggles matter, or not in the sense of not thinking they're absolutely central, um, but in the sense of not thinking that that's what defines the core of the Marxist tradition. Um, if, you if you understand instead the core of, uh, well, I don't want to talk about the Marxist tradition because that can mean so many different things. It was many different traditions. But, um, but if you understand some of the emancipatory core of Marx, um, and of the people that we admire from the 19th and early 20th centuries as being about recovering um, popular power and the abolition of status hierarchies. Um, then, for example, you don't face this moment, this confusing moment of neoliberal uncertainty and the massive return of state intervention amid the pandemic. You don't face that moment by saying this is socialism because there's lots of state power. Um, you're instead concerned. Um, sometimes you might even be saying similar things to right-wing libertarians, though probably not for very long. Um, but you're concerned about uh, 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 massive uh, state power. Um, you might sometimes think it's absolutely necessary. Um, but um, um, uh, this is not an anarchism. Um, but um, I think that core um, is important. Um, and it means today finding hope in, for example, um, the language of abolition, uh, which I read as a kind of transitional demand uh, in Trotsky's classic sense, which is to say uh, it's, a, it's a basic thing. You want to live without uh, the police harassing you. But uh, actually realising that apparently basic demand would require a much bigger transformation in social relations so that you could have a kind of society which didn't require a police force uh, uh, than, than might immediately be obvious. Um, and that's what Trotsky means by a transitional demand. Um, so it's a politics that targets the politics of abolition of police and prisons and borders, um, and most radically the value form itself, right? Targets oppressive experiences and wants to get rid of them. While we should also be attentive to the, 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 some of the sad novelties of a language of abolition, which unlike a language of revolution, which names a subject and an agent, abolition can only name an enemy. And unlike a language of transition, which is aware of complexity, abolition can only name an enemy to be kind of stripped away, much like the anarchist model of politics, just get rid of a state. Um, so, so being aware of some of the problems of these contemporary languages while still seeing uh, emancipatory 
um, openings in them. The recent wave of solidarity with Palestine was premised, I think, on a sense that people should live free from arbitrary power, subjugation and domination. It was weird to me that some socialists, economistic socialists, weren't, uh, didn't see as core to their anti-capitalism, therefore supporting Palestinian liberation. It's not just an optional add-on. It, it, it's, it's a fact about your commitment to a world in which people live in freedom. So I don't have answers to how to materialize that as a mass politics today, precisely because I don't think we're living in 1916 or 1968. I think there was a huge transformation in the 1970s. I don't think everything just changed in 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall, which some people, uh, I think, kind of assume. There was a huge set of transformations of the organization of world capitalism that had materialized by the 1980s um, and that, 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 be, that began to become visible amid the high point of the global left, really, in the 1970s, um, that, that from then on, there were a series of transformations in the class structure of most of our societies, uh, uh, and certainly in the global north, um, that made the identification of agents, of subjects, of constituencies for uh, radical emancipatory anti-capitalist politics harder. And it also made the identification of the objects of their transformation harder. That is to say, it made both the identification of a proletariat, a class with nothing to lose but its chains, much more difficult, and the identification of a bourgeoisie, a class merely engaged in ownership, and which could simply be expropriated, more difficult. So both sides of the class polarization, I think, became much more complicated. Um, and, and so I think the identification of constituencies for radical politics became harder and the identification of objects of their transformation became harder. So I don't have answers, but I think beginning with that emancipatory um, core is a good place to begin while being aware that even that core has theoretical difficulties, which is to say the problem of power, of the thin line between um, hierarchical power, the power that dominates us, and autonomous power, the power to control our own lives, is in fact a line not only thin but murky. Uh, that is to say uh, the turn to state command over economies was a turn undertaken in part out of well-intentioned desire to claim popular power over the social world. You know, we're going to run states and we're going to use them to redirect the social world. And of course, those states became instead forms of power over people and not just forms of power uh, shared by people. So uh, I think that uh, the tradition of socialism from below the uh, much of the uh, radical wing of Trotskyist and some even some anarchists and, and left communists um, uh, became enmeshed still in a logic of governmentality. That is to say, their only alternative to capitalism was a kind of constant agency, a constant acting on the world, um, uh, which uh, uh, which raises murky questions about how to maintain that as a constant form of uh, autonomous power over ourselves and not the development of new bureaucratic structures of, of power over us. Um, and also raises questions about whether the only alternative to capitalism is a world of constant agency and activity, whether we can have a socialism, as Oscar Wilde famously complained, that isn't just endless meetings. Um, I want to be able to have an emancipatory world um, beyond hierarchies of status um, in which people can be free uh, without the only alternative to the impersonal power of markets being the constantly personal political power um, of, uh, of human beings having to wake up every morning and redesign the world afresh um, uh, as a kind of burden. I want that to exist as a, as a glorious opportunity, but not to be um, a painfully bureaucratic burden. So I think these are genuine problems that we face for an emancipatory politics, but we do well to start by thinking about our politics, not just as egalitarian, as you say, but as emancipatory, as all about freedom. Now, you mentioned earlier, and I think you really put your finger on something here, the, the importance of thinking about the emotional appeal of these politics that we've done, uh, you know, we talked about so much today. Uh, and I think this is important because there's sometimes too often among people who reject campism and so on, uh, yeah, an overly rationalistic understanding of 
how people are drawn to particular political orientations um, or ideologies. So then I guess the question is, for those of us committed to a different, very different kind of politics, what do we make of this question of the, the affect of the emotional dimension um, here? And you know, what are, the, are there any implications that you could think about um, if we want to think about how we actually foster commitment to a, a different kind of politics in these very different and difficult times that we're living? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the, the rise of contemporary affect theory, which thinks about politics as systems of emotions, is a very, very helpful uh, uh, corrective in part to Marxist orthodoxies. And you could already see this in, in, in some protagonists of the cultural turn in the 1980s, which is to say, um, uh, we can have a very, a very kind of deceptively rationalistic um, way of thinking about political struggles uh, as readers of Marx, because we can think, Class is an objective social relation. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how you think. You know, when I teach the early Marx on alienation, I have to tell people it doesn't matter if you love your job, you can still be alienated. Um, um, uh, and so, uh, yeah, it doesn't matter what class you think you are. And it doesn't matter what class you identify with. It doesn't matter what your accent is. You've got a set of objective interests and I can tell you what they are. Um, and then the left is surprised when people don't uh, uh, follow the, the, the roadmap. Um, that is to say, act according to the objective sets of interest that the left has, has nailed down uh, for them. Um, and I actually think that um, Marx doesn't just think like that, that, um, um, for example, where it's very important to him to identify uh, as an emancipatory subject, not just those who have a surplus value exploited uh, from their labor and are only paid the cost of their labor power, um, but that particular group of such proletarians, and Marx talks about how proletarians historically have not always been a revolutionary class in Rome, for example, ancient Rome, they weren't. That particular group of proletarians who have a kind of decidedly collective existence in the modern factory. And they're an emancipatory revolutionary class in part, crucially in part, for a kind of objective reason, which is to say, because their social labor uh, can't be, they, they can't liberate themselves by the return of their individual labor to themselves. They can only emancipate themselves socially, right? Um, unlike the farmer who, who wants to get back his own bit of land from his uh, landlord. But I also think there's clearly an affective dimension uh, in the chapters in Capital, for example, chapter 13 on cooperation, um, uh, where the experience of those workers, just like there's obviously an affective dimension to the discussion of alienation. Marx isn't just talking about an objective process where I alienate power over my work to my employer. He also says the worker feels himself at home only when he's not at work. And the worker should feel himself at home in his work. Labor should be life-affirming activity um, through which I uh, activate my sense of belonging uh, to human beings and having a, to humanity and having a purpose in the world. Um, likewise, in, in, in the later Marx in Capital, um, cooperation um, is a moment in which workers come to identify as a class through the process of interaction with capitalists in which they're all interacting with capitalists as workers. So if that's gone, you know, if we're telling people they're workers because of some objective map uh, that we have about their interests that we can identify for them, with no sense of, of, of the feelings summoned by their experiences of the world, then we're not going to form a radical politics, which is in any real sense, and this is a key word for Marx, imminent, that is to say, which emerges out of the uh, everyday stuff of people's experiences. Um, and I think that I'm interested in forms of politics that replace radical left horizons today, like campism, 
or like stuff I've written on anti-Semitism today, because I think they relate to experiences that people have. And of course, this is not the way that liberals will bemoan and, 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 and appall, be appalled by these kinds of politics, which is to moralistically condemn them. And some on the left will do that as well. Right? Lots of Trotskyists will just screech about uh, how campists are disgraceful. Um, but I'm interested in trying to reconstruct the feelings to which these forms of politics respond and are tempting. Um, and yeah, I think a big project for us on the left is to work out what kind of affect, what kind of economy of affect we can summon, what kinds of feelings we can tap into, um, uh, uh, and what kinds of feelings we and our friends and those around us experience that have openings for a kind of imminent possibility of transformation. Without the assumption that we too often make on the left, that there must be a single subject created by uh, the process of contemporary capitalism, which is the hinge through which to transform it. Marx is very excited from the 1840s on by having identified such a subject. Lenin and the Bolsheviks, I think, then rework that more radically than is often appreciated. They say, scrap uh, the slogan, workers of the world unite, and say, workers and oppressed peoples of the world unite. And they have a, prong, a sort of two-pronged coalition of workers and the colonized. Um, um, so these are moments in history at which it really is possible to identify uh, clear, cogent, coherent, emancipatory subjects whose imminent experience of capitalist society can supersede it. Very provocatively, the Frankfurt School talked about negative dialectics, you know, the possibility that there wasn't such an imminent possibility. So it doesn't have to be a possibility for total transformation, but there might be smaller possibilities for some kinds of change uh, that we can identify imminently. And I think that they will be affective ones, not just ones that we preach from on high by telling people what their class interests are, but ones that are actually experienced and not just experienced, here's the better word, felt. And then I think perhaps this could be a, a final question, but I think you touched on another really important question, which is futurity. Um, the question of the, you know, the perception of the future in the, the present moment that uh, is a strong, you know, the difficulty of thinking the future that influences campus politics. Uh, and I'm, I'm struck by that because of how important the question of the future is because of the ecological crisis um, and climate change. So that so many young people today who are becoming politically active are very much focused on the future, but it's you know it's a very bleak future, the future of of, of you know very very bad uh, kind of of climate change. But uh, how do you think this might play into the possibility of emancipatory politics and you know a countering the kind of orientation that has been conducive to campism, for example? Yeah, and I should say a friend of mine, Jason Chowdhury, is writing a, a book that I think looks really interesting. Uh, really great, I hope, um, uh, about climate and affect uh, through the language of exhaustion, uh, the idea of an experience of the world as exhausted, uh, uh, capital as exhausting the uh, uh, material prerequisites for life on Earth uh, with the destruction of the biosphere, and also uh, the same regime of compulsive accumulation, overwork, exhausting uh, uh, billions of people around the world. Um, so that's, I think, a good example of a kind of a really felt, perhaps, experience, which could be a basis, as, as he sees it, for a kind of imminent uh, reconstruction of, a, of, of some of various kinds of emancipatory subjects, if not a single one. Um, um, he makes the point, which Andreas Malm has made in talking about an ecological Leninism, um, that, uh, uh, that, and I, I, I am sort of in this camp, that um, ecological politics it has quite a complicated relationship to the idea of the future, because much of it is about a desperately urgent present. Um, and I think there's a mistake made in thinking the history of the left, which is a mistake that it, the critics of the left, liberals and conservatives often make, who think that the left uh, was always a kind of politics which um, 
uh, didn't care much for the immediacy of the present because it was more engaged in building castles in the sky, which were some glorious future. Which, of course, is a very strange thing to make for a history of the left in workers' movements and other movements of the oppressed who were desperately concerned with the urgent iniquities of the present. Um, but I think that the left's uh, loftiest aspirations, such as they were, very often had their power uh, from being what Walter Benjamin famously called an emergency break, not just uh, a glorious future, uh, radically different from the miseries of the present, but an attempt to rescue some of the forms of livable life in the present from the destruction under which they were uh, being wrought uh, by, um, by the kind of hurtling express of, of devastation, which was constituted by present society. So um, I mentioned the Bolshevik summoning of a coalition between workers in the metropole and the colonized in, in the global periphery. Um, I think for the Bolsheviks and for Rosa Luxemburg and for the whole left wing of European social democracy in the early years of the 20th century, their radicalism was a politics of urgency because they thought that imperialist catastrophe and slaughter and carnage was going to destroy the world. And so revolution was necessary as an emergency break. And the more moderate forces from Kautsky to Bernstein were more optimistic about a kind of slow electoral path to socialism, which they thought was closed off by a temporality of catastrophe, not progress. I mean, that was the world of Lenin and Luxembourg. Um, then in the post-war period, nuclear war, uh, the threat of nuclear war was the first thing that mobilized a new left in Britain, certainly. Um, uh, that is the threat of the destruction of the whole world. And now climate, I think, stands in a similar kind of position. Um, my problem with Andreas Malm's ecological Leninism is that it abandons, uh, I think, the talk of uh, the, the sort of emancipatory politics I was talking around, about around uh, uh, politics of freedom, which was so important to Lenin. Uh, and I know actually you've written similar things. I think I think it's you who have seen writing similar things and criticizing Marx. Maybe I'm mistaken. Um, that um, I've certainly seen people uh, writing this. That um, uh, his his call for states uh, as the instruments, the easy, innocent instruments of an ecological Leninism, abandons the politics of freedom and popular power, which was important to Lenin in that revolutionary moment. But I agree with him that um, uh, there's a kind of urgent now. Uh, an attempt to, 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 um, to retain a kind of conservatism, an attempt to retain aspects of the present and even a lost past. Lenin talks about the glories of uh, Republican sovereignty in the 18th and 19th centuries, destroyed by the coming of bureaucratic states in the early 20th century. I think that left politics isn't just about a future. It is always about attempts to rescue a past and a present um, from, from destruction. And we should be proud of that because we should cherish things about our world which we find beautiful and which we love and which are being destroyed. Um, by not just the deforestation of the Amazon, but uh, uh, the increasing precarization of work uh, and marketization of higher education, which are together destroying the kind of world in which I operate, which once universities genuinely had a space for critical thinking. And so without romanticizing it, very important. So um, I want a politics of the future, which doesn't simply oppose the future to the present and the past in a kind of Jacobin style, um, I mean, the Jacobins of the French Revolution, not the, new, the, com, the, the current publication. Um, but um, but uh, I think there's a kind of conservatism worth rescuing in, in the left tradition. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcasts wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. 
If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.